Thank you for reading our scripture tonight, Cameron. We do want to welcome each and every one who is here tonight. We're grateful for your presence. We're thankful for the opportunity to be here together to worship God in spirit and in truth. I do want to mention that this afternoon, Red Collins was baptized into Christ by Brother Dio White. And Red and his wife have been attending here for quite some time. And so we're happy to have them uh, as, well, I think they're going to place membership next week is my understanding. But over the last month, I had to write these names down because I didn't want to forget anybody. But over the last month, I counted seven people that have been baptized into Christ, beginning with Tim Richardson and then Harley Burnham, Anna Walensic, Abby Matney, Ryan Clark, and then Georgia Dunning. And so uh, quite a list. And we're proud of each and every one that has obeyed the gospel. And it's our prayer that they'll have long and fruitful lives in service to God. We're going to be looking tonight at Hebrews chapter 12. I want to call attention to Hebrews chapter 12, verses 1 through 3. In our study tonight, as we, thinking, as we think together about running the Christian race, I do want to just preface our lesson tonight by saying that I think this week school begins. Is that correct? So we have a lot of happy folks. At least we have happy mamas and daddies. But nonetheless, we want to, we want to keep our young folks in our prayers as they begin a new school year. We've got some that are going to be going to college, and our prayers are with them. We pray that they'll have a safe and productive year as they're away from us, and we hope to see them frequently. And that might be the case that some don't come home as often as maybe their parents would like, but we do wish them well. And uh, it is a landmark experience to go away to school, and we want to remember them in our prayers. Tonight, as we think about running the Christian race, Christianity is not necessarily a sprint to the finish line, but rather it is a marathon. I was thinking earlier today about this lesson, and I got to thinking about how so many times we get wrapped up in who places first and second and third and so on. When it comes to Christianity, there are no first, seconds, and thirds and so on. The bottom line is this, everyone who runs to the end wins. Think about that. Everyone that gets to the finish line successfully ultimately wins. We're here tonight because we're interested in winning the Christian race. It's not enough to just begin the race, but we want to complete the race. And no doubt there are many hardships and trials and obstacles that we face along the road of life. But again, to remember that this is a marathon and we are in it for the long haul, come what may. Tonight I want us to look at verses 1 through 3 of chapter 12, a really basic, simplistic lesson. And there are three main points that I want to put before you tonight. First of all, I think the writer encourages us 
to look back. And that is to look back to the saints of old. Listen to what he says beginning in verse 1. Therefore we also, since we are compassed about or surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses. He's talking there about those individuals that are named in chapter 11. Men and women who lived by faith. And we talk about those who lived by faith. Their lives were adorned by faithfulness to God. And no doubt they had many hardships, and we'll talk about that in a moment or two. But I want you to think about these great men and women who lived by faith. Now, in verse 1, the Bible says that faith is the substance of things hoped for, the evidence of things not seen as yet. Faith, as someone has said in the past, gives substance and reality to things not seen. There is a thread that runs through the lives of every person listed in chapter 11. That thread is faith. Now, the Bible tells us that we walk by faith and not by sight. Well, how do we walk by faith? Well, we understand that faith comes by hearing, hearing by the Word of God. One of the characters that is not specifically named, but his labors are mentioned in chapter 11, is Joshua. And you remember in Joshua chapter 1 when God made the statement that Moses, my servant, is dead. God said to Joshua, this book of the law shall not depart from your mouth. He said, you are to meditate in it day and night to observe to do according to all that is written in it. And then he made this statement. He said, then you will make your way prosperous and have good success. Do you know why these people were prosperous? Do you know why they were successful in their lives because of faith, because they live by faith. You could, you could begin by talking about Abel. Here was a man that worshiped God by faith. Enoch, a man who was translated, did not see death. And we think about his walk of faith. And there's Noah, a man who worked by faith, instructed by Almighty God to build an ark to the saving of his household, which he did, and ultimately became the heir of the righteousness which is according to faith. And then what about Abraham? Abraham was instructed to go out to a place which he knew not. And yet the Bible says he obeyed. I think about the ways of faith. Not just Abraham, but then also the life of Moses. Moses saw him who is invisible. He looked for that reward. And so here were individuals that lived by faith. Their lives were adorned by faith. But there is also a second thing I want you to see, and that is their fortitude. Not just their faith, but their fortitude. And there are two things that I think are borne out in the latter part of chapter 11. First of all, consider, if you would, the obstacles of faith. Over the past year, have you had difficulties? Have you faced trials and tribulations and temptations? Have you ever felt like giving up, throwing in the towel? Look at Hebrews chapter 11 and note if you would, verse 32. Specifically, he's going to talk about those obstacles that they faced. But then they were overcomers by faith. Note if you would, verse 32 beginning. 
What more shall I say? For the time would fail me to tell of Gideon and Barak and Samson and Jephthah, also of David and Samuel and the prophets. Now listen to this statement here in verse 33. I think this is a key. Who through faith. That's the key right there. You want to be able to overcome the obstacles of life, then you've got to rely on what? Faith. The writer said, who through faith. Listen to what they did. They subdued kingdoms. They worked righteousness. They obtained promises. They stopped the mouths of lions. They quenched the violence of fire. They escaped, they escaped the edge of the sword. Out of weakness were made strong. They became valiant in battle. They turned to flight the armies of the aliens. Women received their dead, raised to life again. Others were tortured, not accepting deliverance, that they might obtain a better resurrection. Still others had trial of mockings and scourgings, yes, and of chains and imprisonment. They were stoned, they were sawn in two, were tempted, were slain with a sword. They wandered about in sheepskins and goatskins, being destitute, afflicted, tormented of whom the world was not worthy. They wandered in deserts and mountains, in dens and caves of the earth. And all these, having obtained a good testimony through faith, there's that idea again, did not receive the promise, God having provided something better for us, that they should not be made perfect apart from us. Were they resilient? Yes. Was there a sense of resolve? as they face these adversities and obstacles and trials in their lives? Yes. But through faith, they were victorious. And so when you look back and you think about all the great saints of God, one of the great things about the Old Testament is that there are so many men and women who lived lives that are worthy of our emulation. And I really believe that we can draw strength by looking back and reading about these resilient saints as they faced great odds and they engaged in battles. And yet, time and again, the scriptures make it plain that they were victorious. Paul would say in Romans chapter 15, verse 4, that those things that were written before time were written for our learning, that we, through patience and comfort of the scriptures, might have hope. You ever feel like, the situation you're facing is hopeless in life. You read about the exploits of some of these men and women, and you think about the hopelessness that may have raised its head in their days. And yet, through faith, they were able to overcome. So first we look back. And then secondly, we're encouraged to look up. And that is, we are encouraged to look up to the Savior. Listen again to what the writer says in chapter 12, verse 1. Therefore we also, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us lay aside every weight and the sin which so easily ensnares us, and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us. Now note verse 2. Looking unto Jesus, that's the Savior. Yes, we're to look back, but now we are, we're instructed to look up to Jesus, the Savior, who is identified by the Hebrew writer as the author and finisher or perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and has sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. And then in verse 3, he said, Consider him 
who endured such hostility from sinners against himself. Let me begin by talking about the task of Jesus. The writer brings to mind the cross. Jesus came to earth to die on the cross, didn't he? Back in chapter 10, the Hebrew writer talks about the work of Christ. And really, he goes back to the Old Testament and talks about the prophecies that were given concerning the coming of the Messiah. And in reference to Christ, he would make this statement. Then said, I lo, I come in the volume of the book. He said, it's written to me to do your will, O God. What was that will? Well, God devised a plan before the world began to redeem the human family through his son, Jesus Christ. Peter tells us that Jesus was foreordained before the world began, but was manifest in these last times for you. Jesus Christ is the lamb slain from the foundation of the world, according to Revelation chapter 13 at verse 8. You see, God decreed that his redemptive plan would rest on the shoulders of his son, Jesus Christ. And so the task before him was enormous. And you can read of the struggles that Jesus faced as he went to the cross. And we'll talk about that in just a moment or two. But I think about the Son of God coming to fulfill the will of Almighty God. Listen to Jesus in Luke 19, verse 10, when he said, The Son of Man has come to seek and to save the lost. The Lord Jesus Christ came to fulfill heaven's plan, that plan to redeem us from all iniquity, as Paul would say in Titus chapter 2. But then what about the trials of Jesus? What about the trials that he experienced in this life? Back up and look again at verse 2. The Bible says, Looking unto Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross. Verse 3, Consider him who endured such hostility from sinners. What about the treatment that Jesus received here on planet earth? John said he came to his own, his own received him not. If you look at the trial of Jesus, he had been betrayed into the hands of the Jews, the Roman authorities. One of his own sold him out for 30 pieces of silver. The Bible talks about how Jesus was scourged. They spat upon him. They slapped him. They ridiculed and mocked him. And then they took him out to Golgotha, Calvary. And Luke said it was there that they crucified him. And the malefactors, one on the right hand and the other on the left. To talk about the ill treatment of the Son of God. To try to somehow wrap our minds around the fact that, as Peter said, he bore our sins in his body on the cross. Can you imagine being nailed to a cross, writhing in pain, trying to gasp for breath after breath after breath, to have people standing at the foot of the cross, railing at you, blaspheming your name, 
saying, you saved others, you can't save yourself. If you're the Christ, come down from the cross, then we'll believe you. Let me tell you what, Jesus was the creator. He was the agent by which this world was made, and he suffered at the hands of his own creation. He did so willingly. I think about the treatment of Jesus, but then there's a second thing, and that is the thrill of Jesus. What held him on that cross? Now you think about Jesus experiencing that trial, and it was a mockery of a trial. Think again about Jesus having people slap him in the head, spit in his face, rail at him. He endured all of that. And the writer here says that Jesus endured the cross, despising the shame. Did you know that Jesus Christ could go to the cross and experience Golgotha, the full weight of Golgotha, because of the thrill, the, the joy of knowing that you could be saved. Did you know that the Lord Jesus went to the cross with you in mind? Jeremiah the prophet in Jeremiah chapter 1 verse 5. God said to Jeremiah, before I formed you in the womb, I knew you. We talk about the omniscience of God, the fact that God is all-knowing. And to think that the very Son of God could go to the cross with joy on my behalf. And then to think that folks will reject him and spurn him and laugh and ridicule him. And yet to know that Jesus died for us. He endured the cross, despising the shame, and as the writer said, for the joy that was set before him. Jesus went to the cross with joy in his heart. Joy because his blood was the remedy for our sins. There's something else I want you to see, and that is the tenacity of Jesus. One of the great things about the Lord Jesus Christ, he wasn't a quitter. There are a lot of folks that just quit. They throw up their hands and they give up. Had the Lord Jesus Christ quit, where would we be? Let me tell you where we'd be. We'd be lost. We would be, as Paul said, without hope and without God in this world. Jesus Christ willingly, submissively, and humbly went to the cross for us. So when I think about the tenacity of Jesus, I think about somebody who, number one, did not give in. Now go back to, go back to the Garden of Gethsemane. You remember in Matthew chapter 26, verses 36 through 46, Matthew records Jesus in the, in the garden. He had taken Peter, James, and John with him. He had gone there to pray because that time, that is, the cross, was now before him. So in the garden of Gethsemane, Jesus bows his head in the presence of God the Father. And Matthew says three times Jesus prayed 
to God the Father, saying, if it is possible. In other words, if there's any other way, let this cup pass from me. Nevertheless, not as I will, but your will be done. Luke tells us in his account that Jesus prayed in agony. As a matter of fact, Luke said, and being in agony, he prayed more earnestly. The Hebrew writer tells us in Hebrews chapter 5, lending insight into the pain that Jesus experienced in the garden. He said, who in the days of his flesh offered up prayers and supplications with strong crying and tears unto him that was able to save him from death. And he was heard in that he feared. I think about Jesus in the garden, praying to God the Father and asking if there is any other way, please let it come to pass. In agony, praying to God the Father tears and yet the answer was no there's no other way could Jesus have given in, thrown in the towel, yes he had that prerogative he could have walked away and I'm convinced that the real weight of the cross was the fact that Jesus understood that for a period of time there would be a separation between him and God the Father. You remember on the, on the cross when Jesus cried out, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? So Jesus is praying earnestly in the garden. But he didn't give in, nor did he give up. Lots of times folks give up. And I'll admit the easiest thing to do at times in life is to give up. But look again at what the text says. Looking unto Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him, note that word endured. That's the key word. He endured, he persevered the cross, despising the shame, and has sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. Aren't you grateful that Jesus Christ didn't give in and he didn't give up? And the writer here is saying, look, and he's writing to Hebrew Christians, many of whom were on the brink of going back to Judaism. Some of God's people in the first century had gone back to Judaism. Some were on the brink of going back. And the writer is saying, look, don't give up. Don't give in. Don't give out. Why? Because there's something far better. So he's saying, in light of the fact that there is this tendency among, among some to give up, I want to encourage you to look back. Look back at those saints of God. And then I want you to look up at the Savior. And then thirdly, there is encouragement to look in to self. Let's back up again. And note, if you would, what is said beginning in verse 1. Therefore, we also, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us lay aside every weight and the sin which so easily ensnares us and let us run with endurance or patience the race that is set before us. 
Now drop down and look at verse 3. He said, Consider him who endured such hostility from sinners against himself, lest you become weary and discouraged in your souls. There's a key here for us. And the key is, if we want to enjoy the victory that the saints in days gone by enjoyed, then we must endure. We must persevere. We've got to have the attitude, we're in this thing till the end. We're not giving up. In no way, under any circumstances, are we going to throw in the towel and say, you know what, it's not worth it. Because it is worth it. I would encourage us to take the long view of things. I mentioned a moment ago, Moses. Moses was a great man. And Moses had the treasures of Egypt at his fingertips. But I want you to note, if you would, in verse, well, in verse 26, it talks about how he chose to suffer affliction with the people of God than to enjoy the passing pleasures of sin, esteeming the reproach of Christ greater riches than the treasures in Egypt. Now note what is said. For he looked to the reward. If you're ever tempted to give up, you need to think about that reward. If you ever ask the question, is it worth it? I would encourage you to read passages like Revelation chapter 21, John chapter 14, 1 Peter chapter 1. Passages that remind us of the great blessings that we have in Christ and the hope that we have for a better life beyond this veil of tears. Let me just mention some of the encumbrances of faith that we face in this life. And the writer here talks about them. First, he mentions how we are to lay aside every weight. Sometimes our vision becomes obstructed in light because of what's going on. If we're not careful, we can allow the various weights of life to pose a threat to our relationship to the Lord Jesus Christ. Now somebody asks the question, what do you mean? Well, sometimes it's just the simple, mundane things of life. For example, we can get so busy with our job, school, other activities outside the home. We get caught up in our hobbies, our interests, we get focused on this and that, and before you know it, what happens to Christianity? It gets shoved to the side. Sometimes we allow the things of life to obstruct our vision of what's really important. And so the writer here is saying, here's what you need to do. You need to discard those weights. Anything that would come between you and your relationship to God, you need to get rid of in life. Remember what Jesus said in Matthew 6, 33, Seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness. Is it possible that sometimes as Christians we get so caught up in life that the Lord Jesus Christ gets a slice of the pie rather than the entirety of the pie? The Lord wants the entirety of our lives. He's not interested in just a piece of life. He wants everything. Why? Because he owns you like stock and barrel. Everything that you have belongs to him. So he wants the entirety of your life. And then there's a second thing 
that the writer talks about that is an encumbrance. He said, and the sin which so easily ensnares us. That have to do with wickedness, waywardness. Sometimes sin, as a matter of fact, some translations talk about those besetting sins. I think there's a correlation here to verse 3. Because of sin and the besetting sins, that is, the weaknesses that we have in life. Do you have weaknesses in your Christian life? Are there things that you battle day in and day out? Are there those nuances that just continue to raise their head in your life? It's like you're on the battleground and you're fighting day in and day out and you overcome today. And then tomorrow you're back at it and you're facing the same old besetting sin and you give in. And then the next day comes around, you give in again. And you continue trying to win the battle, but you continue to lose the battle. Well, what's the tendency? Just give up. Sometimes folks say, I can't make it. I can't live the Christian life. That's what the devil wants you to think. He wants you to feel like it's hopeless. So the writer here is saying, here's what you need to do. Number one, you need to lay aside those weights, those things that obstruct you, that pull you down. Then you need to lay aside wickedness, that is sin. Anything that would be a defilement in your life. Peter talks about those who have forsaken the right way. And then link to that weariness. Drop down and look at verse 3. Consider him who endured such hostility from sinners against himself. Lest you become weary and discouraged in your souls. It's easy to get discouraged. It's easy to get weary. Sometimes folks who face debilitating illnesses and diseases get to the point where they're just, they're tired, they're weary. They have fought day in and day out and they finally come to the conclusion, you know what, I'm ready to get out of here. Sometimes as Christians, in the heat of battle, and after we have been pounded day after day after day, we feel like giving up. Listen, the writer is talking to Christians here. And sometimes as members of the body of Christ, we can become discouraged and weary in our souls. Sometimes folks have problems in church. I'm not sure if there are any greater problems than problems that happen to God's people within the body. Sometimes you just feel like walking away. I remember many years ago, I hadn't really been preaching that long, but I went through some difficulties. And for a period of time, I was ready to walk away, quit. I had had enough. I can't tell you what a chore it was to stand up in a pulpit and preach. I was so discouraged. I was so hurt. Maybe even angry. And I felt like quitting and walking away. I'm not saying I'm anything special because I'm not. 
But you see, if I had quit, the devil would have won. And that's what the devil's all about. He wants you to quit. He doesn't care how, he doesn't care how you become discouraged. He doesn't care how you become wearied with Christianity. He just wants you to quit. Get all these tools at his disposal, and he'll use them effectively. So there are some encumbrances that we face in life. But how do we endure? How do we endure and ride out the storm and overcome? I think there are two things to maybe keep in mind. Number one, we need to lean on the Savior. Lean on Jesus. In Hebrews chapter 2, verse 18, the Bible talks about Jesus. And it says, In that he himself hath been tempted, he is able to aid those who are tempted. Can we not cast our cares on him? Can we not go before the throne of God and acknowledge our weaknesses, our shortcomings, our weariness, the discouragements of this life that we feel? Can we not be honest and candid with him and expect help? And then secondly, I would encourage us to lean on the scriptures. The scriptures will encourage When you get down in the valley of discouragement and despair, I want to encourage you to go back and read the book of Psalms. Because over and over and over again, David talks about being down in that valley. And there are valleys and there are mountain peaks, but many times David is in the valley. And I hear David saying in the long ago, this I know God is for me. You think about People may say they'll be for you, and they may be for you, and they may not be for you. But I know this, God is for you. And not only is God for you, but God will be with you day in and day out. That's what God said to Joshua in the long ago. When Joshua took the mantle of leadership, when he assumed the reins of leadership over the nation of Israel, God said, I will never leave you nor forsake you. That same promise is valid today. Hebrews chapter 13, verse 5. I read a story about an interesting lady from Kenya. She was a marathoner, and she was running in a marathon in Austin, Texas. 23 miles in, this young lady is in the lead. Now, you just imagine running 23 miles. One thing to run two, three, four, five miles, but she's 23 miles in, and she's leading. And for whatever reason, she begins to falter. Exhaustion sets in. She gets to the last mile of the race, and she falls to the ground. The reports given are that this lady on all fours crawled the last mile. She came in third, but she crawled a mile on her hands and knees. Sometimes as Christians, we're running the Christian race. Sometimes we're walking. And sometimes we've been beaten down to the point where we're on all fours and we're just trying to crawl to the finish line. 
What an inspiration that lady was to so many people. You can Google it. Interesting story. Now you talk about somebody that had some grit and grind. That lady had some grit and grind. And here she is on all fours crawling to the finish line. The Bible tells us that heaven is out before us. You see, what the devil wants is you to quit. Just say, I've had enough. What you've got to do is say, you know what? I'm not quitting. I'm not going to give in. I'm not going to give out. I'm not going to give up in this thing for the long haul. If you'll run the Christian race, if you'll cross the finish line, you will, as Peter said, receive the end of your faith, the salvation of your soul. If you're here tonight and you're not a Christian, I want to encourage you to come to Christ, believing that Jesus is the Son of God. Jesus said, except you believe that I am He, you'll die in your sins, John 8, 24. If, you'll, if you will willingly repent of all your sins, that is, turn away from a life of sin, confess the name of Christ before others, and be baptized into Christ, the Bible assures you that every sin will be washed away, Acts 22, 16. And God will put you in His body, the church, and the Bible tells us he's the savior of that body, Ephesians 5.23. If you'll be faithful until death, the promise is the crown of life. I don't know where you are in your Christian life, but I know this, it's easy to get to the point where you want to just throw up your hands and give up and quit. I beg you, don't quit. If you have quit, come back. Come back tonight. Let us pray with you and for you as we stand and sing.